0: Welcome, I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. We're delighted and honored that you can join us today for today's teleconference, which will discuss the PERM overview and recent trends. I have with me two of our brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Pam Janice and Jim McLaughlin. Let me start off with an overview of the PERM process. I will answer the three questions, what, why, and how. So what's the labor certification? As most of you know, the labor certification or the PERM is the very first part of the three-stage process towards permanent resident through employment sponsorship. The second stage is the I-140, and the third is the 485. The second part of the question is why? The Immigration and Nationality Act requires as a prerequisite for permanent residence sponsorship by an employer that the employer needs to demonstrate that the sponsorship of a foreign national will not adversely affect the wages and working conditions for U.S. workers. And the third question, which is the how, really requires the employer to verify that the offered wage equals or is greater Then the Department of Labor prevailing wage for the position in that geographic area, that the employer needs to recruit workers in a manner specified in the regulations to test the available workforce, to determine if there are available, willing, and qualified U.S. workers for that position, and the employer needs to submit Form 9089 with the Department of Labor detailing the information about the position the employee's credentials, and the employer's efforts to locate a qualified U.S. worker for that position. So, Pam, since a big portion of the labor certification process, which can actually be quite unnerving for employers and employees, is the issue of meeting or exceeding the prevailing wage as outlined by the Department of Labor. Can you just quickly go over some recent trends with respect to prevailing wages in terms of processing times and what are the four
1: main wage levels, etc.? Sure, Sheila. So currently we're looking at, with prevailing wages, uh, the determination processing time, it's taking around five to seven weeks on average, which is a huge improvement over, say, six months ago when it was taking at least two to three months But even five to seven weeks feels such a
0: long time because I thought when they started the perm process, the whole idea was we're going to wrap up all of your whole processing for the the perm within like a week or two. That's what we were all under the impression that this was super fast track.
1: Yeah, it definitely does put a little bit of a hitch in the process since generally it's a good idea to wait for the prevailing wage determination before you move forward with the advertisements. And in many cases, you know, employers may be anxious to jump ahead, but given how important the prevailing wage is to this process, it's really important to wait until you actually have it. So five to seven weeks, it may seem like a long time, but, you know, it's, it's like we always say, a, a slow approval is better than a fast denial. <laughs> so well-spoken. <laughs> so as far as the actual prevailing wage determination, you're correct. There are four possible wage levels for every occupation, and they vary from the m- entry level, you know, just straight into the occupation, all the way up to the more senior experience, supervisory, managerial types. And the key factor in looking at whether the position is going to be one of those higher level four wages, or one of the lower <laughs> level one wages, is the amount of education and experience that's required for that position. Basically, higher requirements mean higher wages. When A couple factors that can affect the wage level in addition to the education and experience are special requirements, such as um, specific skills, tools, knowledge, certifications, licenses. Um, Also, supervision of other employees can affect the wage level if it's not normally associated with the occupation. Another big ticket one is whether there's travel or relocation required for that position. We're seeing that a lot of people, especially in the IT consulting industry where the positions require travel and relocation, are being affected by this because Department of Labor is fairly routinely bumping up the wage at least by one level where there is a travel relocation requirement.
0: Well, I'm sure that's extremely unnerving for a lot of companies and businesses which routinely require their consultants to be traveling to different either client branches or locations or client sites, etc. And we will touch upon this travel issue later on as well. But while we're at the issue of Department of Labor prevailing wages, a lot of times because the Department of Labor wages are so ridiculously out of touch with reality, though I know it shouldn't be that way. The employers will come and ask you, Pam, hey, how does this alternate wage survey work? Why can't I use it? How would you discuss it? Explain
1: it to them. Well, alternate wage surveys are definitely always an option. Uh, Department of Labor actually has a very high acceptance rate for al- alternate wage surveys, so long as they meet the specific requirements of the regulations and the published guidance on this issue. So it's important to look carefully at a proposed survey to see if it looks like it will meet their requirements and then be accepted by Department of Labor. If the Department of Labor says this doesn't meet our requirements, then you're back to the standard OES online wage level, labor uh, library levels. As far as the acceptability of the surveys, um, the basic criteria are that it needs to be the most recently published survey within the past 24 months. It needs to be based on data that was gathered within the 24 months prior to publication you need to make sure that the job that's listed on that survey reasonably matches up with your offered position. Uh, It doesn't need to be identical in terms of the description, but there needs to be enough overlap to show that they really are the same occupation. Then the next thing is, and this is a key one, that the the wage information in that survey was gathered across industries. There are a lot of industry-specific surveys that are out there, and while that may be more accurate for that specific industry, it's not going to work for um, Department of Labor purposes because they want not just information for the IT software industry, they want to see information across a variety of industries. So you need to make sure that the survey that you are using has information contained within it showing the cross-industry nature of that, uh, of that survey. Uh, The next thing is you need to make sure that the wage that they're listing is either the arithmetic mean, um, also known as the weighted average, or if not that, then it should be the median um, of the listed wages for that area. And it is the area. You need to look at what's the geographic area that they gathered this survey from. Ideally, it should be from the metropolitan statistical area that your position is located in, i.e., the county. Um, but you can go a little bit higher than that, consolidated metropolitan area. sometimes statewide information can use. Um, but it generally, once you move beyond that, it's less likely to be accepted.
0: Okay, And what are the mechanics of using a private survey for in place of the prevailing wage determination?
1: Well, this actually has become a lot easier than it used to be. Um, Currently, you can submit the 9141 form. That's the prevailing wage request form online through the ICERT portal. And when you're including in the job duty section, it's a good idea to actually mention the fact that it's relying on an alternate wage survey and what the name of the survey is. But at the end of um, getting ready to submit it, it asks you, do you want to upload anything? And you can actually physically attach a PDF of the survey at that time so it's a lot easier than it was a lot more streamlined
0: wonderful Um, well that was really helpful Pam and I know now employers are uh, either already have been using it or will certainly intend and plan to work uh, with you to try and use the alternate wage surveys especially if there is a disconnect with reality between the Department of Labor surveys so the question is, what happens if you decide to disagree with the Department of Labor's determination?
1: Well, your first option is to submit a redetermination request. Um, and again, you can do this through the ICERT portal. You can try to argue with the Prevailing Wage Center about whether they assigned the correct um, o code, the correct occupational code, or if they assigned what you perceive to be the wrong wage level. Also, sometimes there are just errors. For example, they say that the position is a level two wage, but for some reason they listed the level four amount. So you can use the redetermination function for that. The one thing to keep in mind there is that you have a limited number of characters that you can use when submitting your redetermination request. So it's important to be very clear about what it is you're asking for, where the error lies, and be very succinct in your request.
0: Uh Aha. And do you have any recommendations before we
1: move on to the next topic which Jim will help us cover? Well, as far as the redetermination request, for the most part, they're unlikely to give them unless you can show a clear error. If you can show based on their own guidance, they picked the wrong wage or if the occupation that they provided has no relationship to the specific occupation. But for the most part, the Department of Labor does seem to be sticking to their guns with these determinations unless there's something that's clearly their error. Um, So if they're not willing to give the redetermination but you still think they're wrong, you do still have the option of filing an appeal. Now keep in mind... You're probably going to have to wait a while, and you have an uncertain outcome. So at that point, you may need to really think carefully about, is there an alternate wage survey that can be used? Or take a look, and is this really the position that you want to be moving forward with? When you were mentioning about the example that you gave where
0: the Department of Labor might end up assigning a level 4 wage for a level 2 uh, job duties and position. I was wondering, does it ever happen the opposite where they issue a level two wage for a level four job? I suppose it's possible. I don't think I've seen that. <laughs> it's always interesting how it's, if the, uh, my point is if it's a mistake or an error, then it should be consistent happening both ways.
1: Yeah, I wish, I wish it was true, but generally the errors are more in the Department of Labor's uh, favor. <laughs> Very good.
0: Thank you so much, Pam. Appreciate that wonderful Detailed overview to help employers and businesses uh, plan. Uh, Jim, coming on, uh, coming, moving on, and coming to the next topic, which is recent trends with respect to recruitment. Uh, you have this whole sort of the real world practice versus what the Department of Labor's expectations are, right. and a lot of employers realize that. You have to play the game in a certain manner because even if you do everything in the real world to attract all the most qualified candidates and you're not able to find somebody and you think you've dotted every I and crossed every T, the government's going to come back and say, "Aha, uh-huh, you didn't do it the correct technical with the little nitpicking issues that they have. So tell us why it is so important to go through this process and what, how the employer can try to make Things work for them.
2: That's right, Sheila. Actually, you hit the nail right on the head. The ongoing trend with recruitment is really the difference between the real world recruitment and what DOL well expects. Um, the Department of is very specific about the forms of recruitment that need to be utilized in the PERM process. And with, as Pam's going to address, the ongoing trend and uh, rise of audits, it's really important to make sure that all recruitment is done very specifically and exactly. Um, now so that raises the question how do you prepare the re- the documentation for recruitment the key is you want to over document document everything review all ads before they're placed review each of the ads after they're placed and maintain this documentation for at least five years now for professional positions you don't actually need to list every job duty and every requirement but you do need to demonstrate the nexus between the specific sponsored position um, and the recruitment being placed Um, Generally, we recommend following the same guidelines you would for newspapers and all other additional forms of recruitment. A lot of issues we've seen um, stem from the types of recruitments that may be utilized. For example, there was a recent case where with the employee referral program, there was a labor certification that was denied because the, the ad that was placed didn't show how the employees are specifically informed of the position, that the employees understood the position being recruited for w- did qualify for the employee referral program. So, you, and additionally... These and were
0: obviously not multi-law firm cases, they were cases throughout other law firms which are publicly available in right, the research? Right, exactly. That's exactly
2: it. And additionally, with the employee referral program, you need to make sure that you specify uh, the incentive for the program for that position. Um, additionally, there was another bulk of case where there was a lack of the employer name if you don't list the employer's name in the advertisement it's going to be fatal um, this bulk of case specifically was a private employer utilizing a headhunter that did not mention the employer's name there was no connection to the position Department of Labor thus denied it now like was sort of mentioned earlier you don't need to include every job duty and every requirement but if you do list a requirement and there's an alternative you must list the alternative as well otherwise that could also be fatal if you're Perm application is audited. Um, lastly, if recruitment, um, such as with the State Workforce Agency, includes fields that don't match specific job requirements, you need to make sure you explain what controls. Um, for instance, it was a bulk of case where the field that was included listed a high school diploma, but the actual minimum requirement was for a bachelor's degree. Um, the employer in this case did argue that despite a listed high school diploma, it would have yielded more applicants. Nonetheless, the Department of Labor denied the labor certification.
1: You know, Sheila, he mentioned a really important point with the employer referral program, uh, and I think it. It relates back to what he was saying earlier about how sometimes there's a little bit of tension between real-world practices and Department of Labor requirements because you have to show the nexus to that specific position. There are a lot of employers out there that have ongoing employee referral programs and all their employees know about it. It's in the employee handbook, but they don't usually say, hey, remember we have that employee referral program and you can use it for this specific position. Now Department of Labor is saying you have to take that extra step. So for employers that do have mm-hmm. ongoing uh ongoing employer referral programs, if they want to use it for a labor certification process, they have to take this extra step that is more than what they would do in their normal practices to document it for this specific labor certification case. Aha, uh-huh, you've just made the point why it's uh, that even if they have a fantastic HR team that's
0: doing everything to recruit properly, they also need an even more amazing and fantastic immigration law team, (laughs) like the Murthy Law Firm, primarily, because what we're really saying, jokes apart, is that you cannot dot the I's and cross the T's enough, that uh, there are a lot of BALCA, which stands for the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals, cases where they will deny a case based on certain technicalities being incorrectly mentioned in the application. And that's why it's so important to work with a strong, good legal team because a lot of times common sense may dictate one code of conduct for you as a business or an employer because you would be like, of course this makes sense. But guess what? If there's a Balka case that says, no, the opposite should be done, you're stuck doing the opposite because you're expected to either know the law or hire a darn good law firm that's totally aware of nuances and the latest changes as they're occurring. And by the way, every single day we look at cases that come out. There are thousands and thousands of cases with the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals and then even their appeal unit, um, starting from the certifying officer's preliminary denial to the Balka reinforcing it to the next level of denials in federal district court. what about travel requirements, Jim?
2: Um, well, I just want to back up one moment just uh, to reiterate you're absolutely right regarding the um, Department of Labor being specific about typos or typographical errors in the ads. They're completely unforgiving about this, and you may risk your labor certification being denied. Now, if there's a travel requirement for the ad, that mu- I mean, for the position, that must be in the ad. Um, one of the most common errors we see at the Murphy Law Firm that other law firms make. Is not to include travel language when it's a minimum requirement of the actual position. Um, So it really, I can't reiterate enough, it must be in the ad if it's in the ETA 9089. One thing to keep in mind as well, however, we've seen recently a trend where the Department of Labor is looking at the 9089 and comparing if the employee, if the the beneficiary of the labor certification is currently employed by the employer is working for the employer but not living in the area where the they're currently say they're working on that 98 and 9 that could also be a red flag in an audit for the Department of Labor so before you commence employment when you're drafting that uh, minimum requirements and the job duties you want to make sure you're clear and you understand really what this job opportunity is
0: okay thank you very much should we move on to you, Pam,
1: discussing some more of the trends with respect to Department of Labor audits? Well, Jim just gave me a fabulous segue there by mentioning the the audits, because this is one of the trends that we're seeing in audits. Uh, the major thing with audits is that there has been a significant increase in the percentage of random audits um, and on um, audits addressing this travel issue. Department of Labor, they had previously said that they were going to be upping their their audit and supervised recruitment um, of cases up to around 30 percent. And that's holding true with what we're seeing right now. Now that they've cleared out their backlog of cases, they've got a lot of time and people on their hands. At least it's
0: not 50 percent like it used to be, (laughs) almost 50 percent at some point.
1: Well, yeah. So that's definitely a small blessing. But um, they are increasing it. And the travel question is a, a current hot ticket item. They're looking at where the person is uh, living, where the person is working, and do they match up. And then they're asking, well, wait a minute, is travel required for this position? Um, Some things that they're asking for is statements from the employer about travel or telecommuting and how that was uh, communicated to applicants, copies of contracts if people are working at, at client sites, itineraries or Um, other evidence to support the fact that the advertisements were placed in the correct area and contained the correct language. Now, this doesn't mean that the headquarters rule is, is not still in effect. For travel and relocation positions, the headquarters rule still does apply. Department of Labor recently came out and said, yes, the Barbara Farmer mar- memo that um, consolidated all that previous guidance is still in effect, but it's really important that the employers be aware of what the requirements are and that they follow it in preparing their recruitment and their forms for these traveling, these roving employees.
0: For those who may not know what the Barbara Farmer memo is, can you explain it, Pam? Sorry to put you on the spot,
1: but in like a sentence? Sure. Essentially, where you have a position who, a person who is constantly traveling and relocating, a roving employee. Um, You're supposed to recruit and obtain a prevailing wage based off of the headquarters of the company, and then in the advertisements, in the language of the job duties on the 9089 form, you need to indicate that there is travel and relocation sufficient to apprise U.S. workers of where they're likely going to have to be for this position. Okay, thank you. Um, The other trend. We talked a lot recently, uh, earlier about the employee referral program. Uh, It's common for audits now where there is an employee referral program as one of the pieces of the recruitment for the Department of Labor to specifically ask for evidence of the nexus between the position and the recruitment program they want to see dated copies of memorandum they want to see specific notifications to the employees such as emails or postings and they want to see how how do you connect up this specific position with the incentives that are offered under the employee referral program another possible um a trend that we've seen is the issue of the payment of the labor certification fees. We've seen instances, especially for companies that have a high number of applications, where Department of Labor is saying, okay, we want to see proof, we want confirmation from the employer and the employee that there was no improper payment. Because as you know, the employer is required by law to pay for the labor certification and all costs associated with that labor certification, including the attorney fees, the advertising costs. And so Department of Labor is using these audits as an opportunity to double check that the employer and the employee have been following the rules and the employer has paid for the labor certification. Okay. Uh, So it's really important then to have
0: tried to document all this and not to have to run around trying to find the information after you get the Department of Labor audit request, you obviously want to have kept all dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's well in advance when you're preparing the case rather than several weeks or months
1: later. Correct. All of this documentation that they're asking for in these audits should be readily available. In fact, it should be already prepared and in a compliance file that the employer has is maintaining because the Department of Labor, they don't need to just ask for this documentation while the labor certification is pending. They can ask for it at any time in the five years after filing. So the employer should have ide- ideally a, a prepared all this documentation in advance and have it someplace easily accessible.
0: Okie dokie. Jim, uh, I know there's been a sort of increase in the percentage of supervised recruitment, and so a lot of companies and employers are always concerned about, you know, what are the trends Mm -hmm. um, and how this works.
2: That's absolutely right, Sheila. You know, in addition to the the regular audits, supervised recruitment is also increased and on the rise. you know one thing to keep in mind if you are chosen as the employer for supervised recruitment it doesn't necessarily mean you did anything wrong if there's any light that can be seen at the end of the tunnel um, for the most part you can say it takes a guesswork out of the recruitment however it's very specific and you have to ask very fast Um, for example when the Department of Labor sends you a letter listing what recruitment needs to be done where you need to place the ads you have 15 days from the date of the letter Not the date the letter is actually received. So, in some cases, you need to act immediately or the very next day to start placing the ads. Now, the Department of Labor can give you one extension um, if you provide a valid request for that extension. Uh, But the Department of Labor does have discretion to deny that request or accept it. So, even in a case where you ask for an extension, it's best if you can to place any of the advertisements they've told you you need to place. Um, now, one thing as an employer to keep in mind: Department of Labor can be flexible regarding some of the recruitment that's placed. If you do send them a request with a valid reason in a timely fashion, um, you know, and identify certain changes you'd like in the recruitment, um, such for example, newspapers that are too expensive or uh, not appropriate for the area intended employment. Department of Labor will consider those. Um, But in any case, at the end, you need to document any basis for disqualification of applications. You need to explain why that individual could not be trained in a reasonable period for that position. Um, For example, say a bachelor's degree in computer science is a minimum requirement and the person has a bachelor's degree in anthropology. You need to specifically state why that computer science degree qualifies for the person for the position that someone with the anthropology degree cannot do, even with a short period of training. And most important, to keep in mind as the employer, it's dangerous to withdraw, to withdraw the labor cert when you're in supervised recruitment. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but it's dangerous.
0: Okay, by, go ahead.
2: Uh, by doing so, the if you file a labor cert for that same employee in the future, that's going to be automatic supervised recruitment. But the risk is, by withdrawing, the possibility all future perm applications that you file may be put under supervised recruitment. So, generally speaking, when you have to say an example where the employer actually is no longer employed with your organization, it's best to tread lightly. Possibly send an, an email to the Department of Labor explaining the circumstance and asking them how they think you should proceed. Most likely, they're going to send you an email saying, uh, "Well, if you're no, they're no longer employed, you can withdraw the case." But that at least puts them notice that um, it's really beyond your control.
0: Okay. I guess also the other thing to keep in mind is a lot of employers, uh, the HR managers, the CEOs in small companies, the founders, the owners, tend to travel abroad for two or three weeks at a time or maybe a month or two at times. And when you just mentioned that there's a very short time frame for responding, which is usually 15 days or less, that's a little bit overwhelming and scary, which means that the the employer, the company, must assign someone else, not only just to check the mail every day, uh, but also check the mail follow-up and ensure that it is f- that whatever supervised recruitment, etc., that needs to be completed within that time again is completed. Of course, if you have an attorney, presumably the Department of Labor will only contact the law firm and
1: the lawyers. Generally, with supervised recruitment, they will contact both the employer and the uh, and the attorney of record uh, with the same documentation. But for example, with the when they're forwarding resumes, because with supervised recruitment, the resumes go directly to Department of Labor. The Department of Labor will send a notice to the employer saying, here are resumes, but they won't attach the resumes. They'll send the resumes to the attorney. So there is a little bit of a a catch, you know, a little bit of safety net there that there's uh, documentation going to both. But um, it is important, Sheila, you're 100% correct, that the employer really, the the labor certification is an investment of the employer's time and energy and money. And it's important that they do, you know, put the effort into it. I I always tell people that the labor certification is the most labor intensive portion of the green card process for the employers. But generally, once they get past it, the whole process gets a lot easier from there.
0: So true. And it's so like superficially such a simplistic form that appears just to be pages and pages of information gathering. But it has so many subtle hidden traps for the... for someone who's not really sensitive and cognizant of all of the issues. So, you know, to try and and wrap up, and we're always sensitive to our 30-minute time frame, and I think we're doing really, really well, uh, but as all of you know, PERM labor certification is a highly technical process with details that can certainly create traps for employers or businesses. However, if you as the employer will approach the process with the right attitude, the right perspective and hire a darn good attorney or law firm like the Murthy Law Firm to hold your hand and guide you through the process, a lot of your problems will fall into place and you will be able to take care of it. Um, the real crux of the issue is a lot of times the employers will be approached for you know the EB-2, EB-3 and we touched upon it very briefly. But as the employer, you have to determine what are the actual minimum requirements for the employer for that particular position, and based on those minimum requirements, the company will have to pay the Department of Labor prevailing wage or use the alternate wage survey, and the employer needs to demonstrate that they have made good faith efforts to recruit qualified U.S. workers for that position. Um, And we obviously would help you to do all of that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We certainly hope you've understood the nuances and the complexities of the PERM process. Thank you for being a part of our uh, teleconference series. Thank you to both Pam, Janice, and Jim McLaughlin for being a part today of our teleconference. We look forward to having you again next month um, at the same time. And you know that your secret weapon and your secret shield are having the most incredible legal team to guide you, protect you, and help you throughout this complex process. Thank you and have a wonderful day.